name's Bond. James Bond. What do you think you're doing? Keeping the British hand up, sir. Grow up, 007. <laughs> this never happened to the other fellow. I'm the man. Every penny of it. So you put your money where your mouth is. Well, that's quite a nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. I'll do anything for a woman with a knife. Shocking, positively shocking. You get your clothes on, I'll buy you a nice train. Uh, <laughs> Hello everybody, it is Double Oz 7, Australia's number one James Bond podcast, because we're the only James Bond podcast, and we are back and ready and able and getting into another decade recap episode. It's not the 60s, it's not the 70s. It's not the 90s, the 2000s, or the 2010s. It's the 1980s. I could have kept going on there, couldn't I? It's not the 2020s. It's not the 2030s. Uh, as Calvin Harris famously once sung about, it is acceptable in the 80s, and it's acceptable in the 80s to talk about James Bond in the 80s. We've got a fair bit to cover, including three James Bonds who performed as James Bond, and then they left, and uh, a few other side characters that sadly left the series as well. Well, at least the actors, anyway. But uh, as always, my name is Ben, and BB will be mentioned in this episode along with Keish. And my name is Colin, and my original comment about Timothy Dalton had to be edited out. <laughs> my name is Noah, and... Hooray, it's the 80s, and I suck at thinking of impromptu intros. Let's just start the show. <laughs> it's not fair. You know, we, we plan these episodes a week in advance. It's not that impromptu. You're not listening to pre-production I again, Noah. I didn't get time to come up with my 80s line. <laughs> oh, goodness me. Yes. I mean, what? Coming up with the lines before the episode? Oh, that doesn't We'll matter. go back and edit something over the top of that. But, uh, yes, 80s, these decade recaps, they're flying through. Um, you know, I just remember talking about the 60s and... Here we are talking about this decade, but uh, it's been a very interesting um, period of recaps. We've obviously had uh, our five films plus Never Say Never Again, so six films in total, and um, we've had varying opinions. This has probably been our most divided decade, I feel, in terms of not only where we place films, but how we felt about them and everything along those lines. And we kind of always start off by... Um, really asking how we've been finding the rewatch so far as we keep going through. And just from my perspective, quickly, I, I'm still very much enjoying um, this rewatch. I, I think we're really getting into the films now that I've seen a lot. A lot of the films that we talked about previously I'd seen, but some not in a very long time, and it was kind of almost like watching them again. Um, this decade, particularly Octopussy, I'd only ever seen it once, and it'd been a long time, and obviously never say never again. I'd never seen it before and i still wish that was the case so um you know it's been it's been fun i'm really enjoying it i'm enjoying talking about it and learning things and and bagging things out and trying to defend things but uh yeah no i i am very much still uh enjoying this little thing that we're doing right now yeah i i'm surprised that i've been enjoying the 80s as much as i have been because i've never been a huge fan of uh the the decade as a whole outside of you know, Free Your Eyes Only and Octopussy, which even coming into this, I knew I was still going to love. Uh, everything improves a little bit, but you end up being a lot more critical when you're doing a rewatch of this. So I think we've pinpointed some flaws that 
um, maybe I've never noticed before. It's not really that it's changed my opinions on any of these movies, but you maybe come out of it understanding more why a certain movie didn't sit as well for, for you. And uh, I'm still not a huge fan of this decade. Uh, I think that it definitely ran its course with John Glenn by the end. Um, I think the most interesting thing I've been finding with this rewatch is just Ben, you talked so much about how you love the 80s movies going in, and I don't think either of us expected you to necessarily rank the 80s as highly as you did, so I think that's been the biggest surprise so far. Um, yeah, it kind of does lose a bit of its magic, like when you've watched, what, 15 of these, 16, after, like, coming off the 60s where it was just, like, Doctor No, and then from Russia, we love golfing, and now we're getting into a whole bunch of them, like Never Say Never Again and License to Kill. Um, but it's still been just as much fun, and I love that each decade there's different things, and I'm sure if you analysed it and grouped our episodes together, we have so. I'm sure we've developed each decade as well, probably not for the best, if you've heard some of our recent episodes. <laughs> Uh, we seem to get a lot more angrier in the 80s for some reason. <laughs> the drugs, uh, angry and vicious. <laughs> yeah, our license to be kind uh, was not revoked. Um, what well, was revoked. Um, but, yeah, I'm sure each decade we've talked about common threads and all that. Um, our episodes have seemed to really get wild uh, and, like, Fear Eyes only sticks out when maybe we'll talk about... Uh, our personal favourite moments from episodes. But, yeah, the 80s, like Colin, it's not one of my favourite decades, but it's really been fun to go back and explore. I don't know how much of my opinion has changed, but overall most of it's probably changed for the worse. Um, I think I came out of it less of a licence to kill Defender than I was coming into it, it coming into this rewatch. I probably would have been more on Ben's side, but after this recent rewatch, maybe not so much. But... I maybe equally enjoy talking about the ones I don't like as much as I do the ones that I do love because it always brings interesting discussion. I find I find it fascinating, kind of going back to Colin's point about the rankings of that, but it's you get to those moments where you, you really do enjoy it and you sort of come into it, and then you sort of get backed up into a into a wall and sort of you know realize that your opinions might necessarily match what the other people you're talking with, and it makes me get very like, no, I've got to you know really strive to defend this and go for it, and um, I think I've even surprised myself with some of my rankings to be honest, but um, I stand by them. We'll get to those. Um, I think we've all surprised each other at least at one point during this uh, rankings with our whole personal rankings, well, a.k.a. My, my second ranking. As Colin, though? Like, let's be a. honest here. your top ten. Um, <laughs> but I, I just want to put it out there. I, I don't think Colin really... I, Colin, looking at Colin's um, Thunderball list... Thunderbolt is like his fourth film or something. Well, Mine's all logical. That's the difference. <laughs> <laughs> this is a Canadian in him. He's just very logical. Um, well, Noah mentioned it. Uh, obviously, uh, episodes uh, throughout the 80s, we've done six recaps. Um, so, you know, some of our favorite moments, um, yeah, Noah mentioned Fury Eyes only. <laughs> um, I will admit I'm actually, um, listening to that one. Well, not right now I'm recording a podcast, but like, um, currently, <laughs> uh, I've sort of listening to it again and, you know, my memories of it were, well, that was a bit crazy, but when you actually listen back to it, you're like, wow. Um, and you know, I, I hosted that one and let's put that into perspective. Um, I think between Noah and myself, we hadn't watched it in actually in about two weeks. 
So <laughs> the fact that I was sort of hosting this and I hadn't seen it in a couple of weeks, um, so I kind of went into acting out scenes to try and remember what I was <laughs> talking about. Um, that really stands out. We had uh, horsey moments. I mean, we, it was a decade of the horsies, the 80s. Um, <laughs> so That's one thing the 80s brought. Uh, we had Mustacha, which was a little accidental comment by Noah that Colin and I ran with because it was just hilarious. Um, it was just, it was such a fun episode. And I think really, like you mentioned, I think, no, it was, it said we got a little bit angry, particularly with the later ones. I feel as though we, we had fun that episode without actually getting angry at each other. So, um, it was quite a calm one, to be honest, but just a bit silly. Um, never say never again. I mean, that was just fun to talk about because I was just so shit. Was it? Um, and I, I I, personally like the Dalton ones because, well, we got to talk about Dalton and I knew coming into those that I was going to be like, yeah, Dalton. And Colin was going to be like, oh, Dalton. So um, I think it's a real precursor uh, to when we eventually get to some of the Brosnan films, particularly one of them, no doubt, which is going to be an episode that everybody's waiting for us to get to just to see how that turns out. But um, For Your Eyes Only is my standout by far of this decade in terms of what we've done with these episodes. Yeah, I think For Your Eyes Only was definitely the most fun to record, and I haven't heard it a second time yet, or heard it a first time, I guess, because I was on it the first time. Um, but... I did re-listen to Never Say Never Again right after we recorded it just to see if, if <laughs> it was. We were all so anxious Why? to just be done. Yeah, I mean, we were all so anxious to be done with talking about the movie that I think my opinion was, boy, that's going to be a terrible episode. And when I re-listened to it, it, it was quite entertaining. Um, uh, I, I think we were able to, uh, at least from my perspective, this is not patting ourselves on the back. Keep that in mind. Uh, it's just Topic low genius. expectations. <laughs> <laughs> I think we found a way to make talking about the movie uh, slightly more entertaining than watching the movie. Um, so that one did surprise me. Uh, the License to Kill one, I'm going to be interested because we're still in the process when recording this of uh, piecing it together and everything. I'm going to be interested because I think there's a lot of uh, borderline for your eyes only moments in that one of ridiculousness. <laughs> and uh, I particularly liked uh, going back to even your original comment about the decade, Ben, how... Um, you you ended up being defensive of certain things. <laughs> I think License to Kill, it didn't matter what we threw at you. You had a defense for a <laughs> uh, blinking fish. So <laughs> I'm going to have a lot of fun going over that episode. Just laughing at Ben, if nothing else. It's a blinking fish. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good point. Anything, any criticism Ben had a response to in License to Kill. <laughs> <laughs> no matter how far how, how are you going to be a diner of the day then wow <laughs> uh, comments on pan's hair and um... hey <laughs> but yeah i think the two dalton ones followed the pattern of the dalton films we went pretty serious and getting angry at each other yelling almost uh very serious dalton um and also, much like the Daltons, the episodes seem to fall apart in the second half, um, <laughs> much like the films, like The Living Daylights. Yeah, we were having a good discussion, cut to the fair, and then it's all downhill from there. <laughs> like the roller coaster. Um, yeah. <laughs> but the, the Fear Eyes Only one sticks out just because it was coming off Moonraker, and we kept saying, oh, this is 
Bond back to his roots down to earth. We just had our silliest episode ever with Moonraker. And somehow we came out with that episode, which is probably the most absurd James Bond podcast out of all the James Bond podcasts, that particular episode, because that was just crazy. Um, I think Colin probably has better memories of uh, Never Say Never Again than I do, because I don't remember much from that episode. So I have to go back and listen to that. But uh, A View to a Kill as well, that's another memory that sticks out. Uh, The quiche. (laughs) because let's face it, it's Bond baking a quiche. So uh, that was a memory that stuck out for me during our personal episodes. Um, but, yeah, I think Fear Eyes Only is just the one that's the craziest thing ever, that's just Mustacha and Sheena Easton and Horsies and Luigi and <laughs> Countess and just BB. And, uh, one of the funniest memories was uh, Ben and Lynn Holly Johnson, where Lynn Holly Johnson, uh, Ben's in the bed naked and Lynn Holly Johnson <laughs> walks in <laughs> and Ben's there going, <laughs> oh, come in here, Lynn. <laughs> which is one of the absurd uh, uh, things I've ever pictured in my head ever. But, yeah, we've got some pretty wild episodes in the 80s when I thought the 70s was supposed to be that decade. If we had fans and listeners, they would be creating some crazy um, fan videos and pictures about that, but um <laughs> doesn't seem to happen. Special uh, note too. Take the law, we don't. Then. Special, special note too. Ben, to- let's be honest. We do have fans and listeners, and none of them want to create the image of you <laughs> and Ben as PB. <laughs> oh, I'm offended. Um, special note too <laughs> to Octopussy fart music. Um. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> let's let's talk about that really quickly for a second. <laughs> I'm sure there's some people who listen to that who are like, what? <laughs> well, ben had told us that he was having some fun editing and <laughs> that he put some fart effects in there. Now, I thought when he first said that, he's like, oh, one or two little fart effects. Okay. <laughs> then I downloaded the episode and listened to it. Oh. I have to say, though, I mean, I was crossing the street. I was, I was on a boulevard crossing a very busy street. And it was a red light, and I think every single time a fart effect came up, I burst out laughing and had to turn and cover my face. Now, it wasn't one of those burst out laughing as in, like, that's amazing, that's comic genius. Uh, It was more like, that's the most horrific thing I've ever heard that is kind of funny. It's a reaction. And I say he uploaded it without uh, <laughs> checking it in the post-production <laughs> meeting. <laughs> well, I'll be honest. The last time I did something like that, I got told off. Oh, you stole my joke with the Star Wars and the Fiora Eyes Only Moonraker. But it was just, I think I. Literally... So you come up with your own jokes. <laughs> well, <fast. laughs> I can't steal them. I can't create my own. Um, <laughs> when I was editing it, Colin, how are you with editing? <laughs> Because we'd ripped so much shit into the song, I'm like, well, this song is shit, so what goes with shit? Um, I, I initially, All I initially did was add the booing sound effect when she started singing. I left it at that, but then I was like, oh, hang on a minute. I remember, like, Noah was like, going, all I want is for us to be... Like, with, in the Indian accent, that would go funny over the top of it. Oh, that, I, w- that was really funny in it. I, I remember <laughs> yeah. I did the music. Oh, that's hilarious. Oh, what, what could be added to that? Fat sounds. <laughs> I'm going to say something. This sounds bizarre for anybody out there who who thinks we lost all credibility with that, which is probably everybody who listened. Um, (laughs) 
the fart noises, the only thing I was disappointed about is we had just recorded Never Say Never Again, and I'm listening to the beginning of Octopussy, and I'm like, it is kind of funny, but I think we wasted it, because if we had put that at the beginning of Never Say Never Again, yeah. I think it is comic genius. <laughs> Damn it, I peaked. I peaked too early. <laughs> and we can't re-edit it before you get any ideas, Ben. <laughs> Damn it. Um, all right, so I guess in terms of our, our rewatch, um, expectations. Have we had really... And I guess we touched on a little bit there. Um, in my expectations, look, I knew I loved this decade and I knew I was going to defend it. Um, so I guess, as I said, I maybe didn't necessarily think I was going to rank them as high as I did, but I'm glad I have. Um, uh, look, never say never again. I didn't really have much of an expectation. And yeah, I guess that was blown out of the window for how terrible it was. Um and I guess uh, Octopussy was probably the one with expectations because I didn't have a whole lot. Again, as I said, I hadn't seen it in a very long time. So, um, you know, going into that kind of almost seeing it for the very first time in a way. So I don't necessarily think I had a whole lot of major expectations outside of those ones. I think I think everybody has the same perception of Bonds. There's They kind of develop their own persona. You know, Sean Connery's the the cool one, Roger Moore's the funny one, Timothy Dalton's the serious one. And I think that can, no matter how many times you watch a movie, that can kind of affect your opinion of their movies. And a perfect example is, you know, Ben's opinion. You go back to our early episodes and anytime Roger Moore's name was brought up, it was just cringing. And you can see in Ben's rankings how highly he ranks at least a few of Roger Moore's movies now. But uh, that whole perception of like the the goofy bond with Moore and the serious bond with Dalton, when you really do sit down and analyze these movies and pick them apart, you, you notice a lot of things. And I think, at least for me, I often forget how well they pull off a serious movie with Roger Moore, with Fear Eyes Only and Octopussy. Uh, there's goofy moments in there, but I think we are all talking even in Octopussy about how you know, the clown suit and the, the gorilla suit, I mean, they weren't being played for laughs. They were just part the of ghost? the story. And for the ghost. Well, Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Uh, that's a little bit different. But for the most part, I think that those movies really do hold up as being better for being serious than most people give them credit for. And the Dalton ones, again, there's that perception. Dalton's so serious. The movies must be serious. And I think we found tons of just ridiculous moments in both the living daylights and license to kill that as i kept saying you know you put that in a roger moore it appears brosnan movie and those guys are they're crucified for it um it's not even necessarily a criticism movie it's just i find that there's a lot more balance with the 80s in john glenn's movies than i originally thought because i always thought well you kind of had you know the roger moore ones he went really goofy with one for a view to a kill and he got serious again for living daylights and i think all five of them really stand up across the board as being very similar to each other and you could put maybe change the writing a little bit but put roger moore in all five of them and it still feels like a roger moore movie and you could put timothy dalton in all five of them and it still feels like a timothy dalton movie never say never again on the other hand um i don't think that i really expected to love the movie i think i did expect to have more appreciation than i did when i originally watched it that didn't change um <laughs> I don't think Never Say Never Again is ever going to hold up as a good movie for me. Can I just say, uh, License to Kill with Roger Moore sounds pretty amazing. Um, <laughs> as what, an 80-year-old? Yeah, that would not be down the bottom for me. Um, yes, for me, I would say, and 
we're going to talk more on the Bonds later because I do have some opinions on Roger Moore like that. Um, but for me, I think Never So Never Again is one I had higher expectations. And that doesn't mean I thought it was going to be a top 10 film. I just remember seeing it years and years ago and thinking, yeah, Sean Connery, cool motorbike scene, uh, some action, uh, Empire Strikes Back directing, uh, which was soon discovered that he also may have directed Snow Dogs, perhaps. Um, <laughs> maybe not. Uh, so I had higher expectations, but that was total crap. Um, what was the other one? A View to a Kill is one that shocked me because I put it last and I always maintained that I was a View to a Kill defender and there is definitely some things I enjoy about that film uh, to this date. Uh, but it was just when you're really analysing it, it just really did not hold up amongst some of the other ones. So I was shocked because before we came into this, I probably would have put that above Octopussy and For Your Eyes Only and I know everyone's laughing at me for saying that, but... <laughs> um, well, yeah, well, laugh at Ben, perhaps, because he actually did. Um, so, yeah, that really went down for me. The other ones, again, License to Kill, I thought I would enjoy more. Living Daylights uh, did not really change for me. Uh, we'll talk more about Roger Moore later. Uh, and Dalton, again, he's just that middle of the road for me. I'm the middle person between the two of you, the balance of power. Um, I just, he's good. I guess. Um, <laughs> but one thing I really, and we will, as I keep saying, talk about the legacy kind of of the Bonds, but this is something we need to discuss, and this is a question for you, Ben, uh, that Colin touched on just before, is coming into this, you were very anti-Roger Moore. You said, he's hands down my least favourite, all this, and you had not seen a lot of the Roger Moore films in a long time, I'm guessing, uh, none recently before this. So... This is a question I've been waiting to ask because we've gone through the Roger Moore films, which went by a flash mad because we thought it was going to go on forever, and I was upset when we got <laughs> to the end of Roger Moore. Um, so, simple question, has more Roger Moore changed for you after watching these and analysing it? Do you view Roger Moore as a different Bond now rather than, oh, I hate him, cringeworthy, oh, least favourite ever? Yeah, I do, um, and... Yay. I, I think. I mean, I was thinking about this the other day in terms of we're going to do an episode eventually where we rank the James Bonds, and you know, I it's it's going to be kind of interesting in how we do this because while I can probably guarantee what my top two is, it's sort of ranking the ones below that because you know if I had done this a year ago, hands down, Roger Moore's down the bottom without question, but. There's a lot of elements to his Bond, portrayal of Bond that I like. Like, we talked a lot about kind of, um, you know, the campy nature of his films and, you know, particularly in the 70s and, you know, yeah. Genuine Felix Lloyd. <laughs> a lot of people are anti-camp in Bond, but, you know, I've always been one that kind of enjoys that because, you know, when we get to the Craig films, we'll talk a lot about kind of viewpoints and perspectives of the James Bond series and what we think a James Bond film should be. Um, obviously, I think Moonraker went way OTT with that. But, you know, I mean, the 80s, more films, like, yeah, I used to just say, like, yeah, he's just a grandpa in those. But after seeing, you know, Never Say Never Again, I said I wouldn't bag him out for that. Um, and, look, it's it's there's still a lot to his Bond that necessarily doesn't tickle my fancy. But, look, I've mentioned a lot. He's, I, he's the best Bond when it comes to delivering one-liners. He's got the best facial expressions. Um you know, he's a very charming, proper English gentleman. I think, though, some detractors still to Bond, like, to, to Moore, is like, if you 
if you kind of analyze each of the bonds in terms of, say, like a an attractiveness, like, you know, the old saying, men want to be him, women want to be with him. Moore's probably the least likely I can really see is almost a sex symbol, which is really strange given that my mum the other day, uh, I was randomly <laughs> watching a Roger Moore clip. I was actually, no, I was showing her the Man with the Golden Gun penny whistle scene because my message tone <laughs> on my phone at the moment is, Ooh, so I had to show her what it was from. And she straight away goes, Oh, Roger Moore. Oh, yes, I used to like him. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, really? You're going to say your catchphrase about your parents. Oh, but she's just an idiot. <laughs> That's my mum <laughs> talking about now, not my dad. Um, which is kind of like, you know, because he's charming and proper. But again, like, sexy, I don't know. I don't really know that side of how women and men, I guess, uh, over the years have perceived Roger Moore. But um, And there are other elements, too. He's not really the toughest sort of James Bond, which I think really needs to be important with the character and... And, you know, it's it's kind of a few detractors still. But in a long-winded answer to your question, yes, he has gone up in terms of where I was a few months ago on Roger Moore. Hooray, mission accomplished. I didn't know if anyone else wanted to add anything in regards to that. But anyway, um, so... I think Roger Moore is a sexy man. That's all I have to add. <laughs> He's very sexy. Well, you still... You, you were worried that uh, Jay was going to leave you for Daniel Craig. Are you ever worried that she was going to leave you for Roger Moore? <laughs> She'd leave me for Roger Moore over Timothy Dalton. That's all I know. <laughs> I don't think your husband Colin would have been. <laughs> um, look, we'll, we'll continue on with the legacy part of this because, I mean, there is another question sort of that we'll skip over, but um, we're sort of changing it up a little bit. But, I mean, the, the key thing with this decade is we kind of alluded to at the start. I mean, this we have three James Bonds, really, that we've got to eulogise in this um in this decade, you know, I mean, obviously when we talked the 60s, it was all Connery bar one film and obviously we had to eulogise Lazenby. Um, and then in the 70s, it was all more bar one, but we obviously knew that we still had one more Connery to talk about. This decade, we say goodbye to more to Connery and to Dalton. Um, so we've got a bit to talk about here in terms of their legacies and that. I guess it touched on more. Connery, ugh, look, I, I talked a lot about Never Say Never Again. I still stand by the fact that it's gone down a little bit. I just, I just, I just can't believe he did that film. Um, and look, it's Connery is still a fantastic James Bond. He is James Bond in terms of the, the ultimate legacy of the character. But for him to do that movie, I just, uh, Jesus, Sean, no. Um, and yeah, Dalton, look, I'm still high up on him. As I said multiple times in our two episodes, I think the Daniel Craig era has helped Timothy Dalton as James Bond in the overall scheme of things. So, um, the only thing as well, again, kind of Noah, I know I alluded to a lot of this before. It was a shame we never got to see him in a third, uh, Bond, um, cause that perhaps could have even gone a whole lot further to changing how that went. So it's a shame, you know, property of a lady never got made or, you know, golden eye perhaps, but, um, you know, <laughs> obviously I wouldn't want that without Brosnan, but yeah, it's, it's, it's just a fascinating decade that we have so much to kind of say goodbye to when it comes to three icons of cinema, when it comes to playing the character of James Bond, particularly Moore and Connery. So yeah, sad decade to say goodbye to these, uh, legendary characters, uh, well, actors who played a character. Well, I'll just really quickly uh, touch on Moore. I think that um, Moore is sort of coming out of this uh, this era in our time where he was the most criticized Bond. And for a long time, it was just, oh, Roger Moore is goofy. I don't like Roger Moore. And all of a sudden, people are starting to warm up to him. And I think that has a lot to do just with 
how uh, how vocal he is uh, about the Bond movie still, where other actors won't even speak about it. Um, Roger Moore has kind of endeared himself to the fans lately, and I think that's gotten a lot of people to go back and appreciate the things about him that they were maybe too critical of before. Um, I always think that Roger Moore is great. I think that, especially coming off of this rewatch, I used to always appreciate Roger Moore just for his entertainment value, but the guy can really handle his dramatic scenes when he needs to. Um, the Spy Who Loved Me especially, I mean, we all said that was one of the greatest, if not at least up until that point, the greatest performance any actor had given is James Bond. And I think it holds up against anything Daniel Craig does. I think that Roger Moore is probably never going to be viewed as the greatest James Bond of all time, but he may very well go down as being viewed as the, the favorite actor among those people. And I think that's enough that, that people appreciate Roger Moore as an actor and appreciate Roger Moore uh, as a person uh, just for how much enthusiasm he's shown the franchise over the years. Sean Connery, it, it, the funny thing is I, I absolutely hate Never Say Never Again. I've always hated it. This didn't improve, as I said, for me watching it, but I don't think it really takes anything away from Connery. There's something about Sean Connery that's just untouchable, and it's something that both bothers me and that I completely understand at the same time, because I often hear criticisms of Pierce Brosnan, as we said, Roger Moore, and I wonder, well, why does Connery ever get this? Connery gave four good performances in his first four movies, and then he gave three completely phoned in performances uh, where it's so clear that he didn't even want to do it. And yet he's always forgiven by fans. And that has a lot to do with him being the original also has a lot to do with the fact that he's, he's, he owns even being lazy in these movies. Uh, there's no, there's no show he's trying to put on and he's not, you know, lying to anybody saying, I love James Bond. I want to play James Bond forever. Like even when he came back for diamonds are forever, it was I'm doing this for the money. Never Say Never Again, we said it was clear he was doing it just to kind of, you know, get a jab in it, uh, Broccoli. And it, with Never Say Never Again, I mean, his performance is exactly what we had the previous few times. And I think that it's okay that his legacy stays in the 60s and that he came back for these movies. I don't think it really detracts from him other than the fact that we know, obviously, it, it allows for Ben to have more appreciation for Roger Moore. And I think it allows for a lot of people have more appreciation for Roger Moore, a guy who did one more movie than Connery did in his career and remained just as enthusiastic the whole time uh, with Timothy Dalton. I don't know. <laughs> I'm very <laughs> critical of him. I don't think that'll ever change. I will say that uh, it does help watching these movies uh, in a different order because when I originally saw living daylights was one of the first bond movies I ever saw and I was coming off of seeing several Connerys, one Roger Moore, and some Pierce Brosnans. And it just, uh, it's, it didn't sit well with me, especially being a lot younger at the time, watching The Living Daylights and finding the guy kind of boring. And every, as I said throughout these rewatches, every time I've watched Living Daylights or License to Kill, particularly License to Kill, it has been because I'm doing a full series rewatch. And that does hurt it a little bit because you're waiting to get to the ones you like. Uh, golden eye or casino royale later on so i'm kind of just wanting them to be over with sitting down and dedicating time and saying i'm going to watch license to kill just for license to kill and i'm going to watch living daylights just for living daylights i think i can appreciate uh more things about it and i do agree with you ben that daniel craig has helped people look at timothy dalton in a different way that they hadn't before 
So my praise of Timothy Dalton may be a little backhanded, but I think that uh, despite the fact that he doesn't really succeed in two of the three elements that you need to be Bond, you have to, you know, kind of be believable as a bit of a ladies' man. You have to have a little bit of humor and cockiness to you, but you also have to be kind of tough and serious about what you do. He does nail that last one, and he really nails that last one. It's the other two that I think are lacking, and um, I do think his reputation's improved over time. And I also will agree that I think had he been given a third movie, he may have finally come around and been able to deliver a one-liner, because anybody who doubts that, go out and watch Hot Fuzz, watch Chuck. See, this guy is known for comedy now, and it's, it's really sad he didn't get the shot to develop a little bit further in that. And Looney Tunes back in action. I think you're forgetting one important thing, Colin. We have nothing to declare. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Who said Dalton can't do one and, line? And, and. I did, because of terrible one liner. Hang on, you're missing the main one. Doodoo! <laughs> <laughs> At least it's not. He had a lot of guards. Oh. Um, yeah, where to start? Roger Moore, I'm a huge fan, and. I think we've just seen through this rewatch that we've all appreciated him a lot. And one thing we've kind of broken the myth of Roger Moore only does, uh, I was about to say, only does cottery, <laughs> only does comedy. Hello, I'm Roger Moore. Yes, I'm also Roger Moore. I'm doing a Sean Connery impersonation. Yeah, Roger Moore only does comedy, not cottery. Um <laughs> But that scene with Anya is like one of the most serious scenes in Bond history, and it, I still maintain up until this point, and maybe maybe at the end of the entire thing, that the Spy Love Me is the greatest performance of a Bond out of any film ever. He shows the action, the comedy, and all of the elements that Colin was talking about with Dalton, um, and all of those one-liners in the car with Anya is just so great. Um, I am a huge fan, and I think I already really enjoyed him, but I think he's just gone up even more after this rewatch. So I can't wait to get to our rankings of the Bonds because I'm just going to tease this. Roger Moore could be very high up there. I really enjoyed this rewatch even more so. Um, and, yeah, I was talking to my dad about this the other day, and, like, Roger Moore is his Bond and like, yeah, Roger Moore was super popular back in the seventies and Moonraker was the biggest thing. Um, and he has kind of taken a hit, which really devastates me because if you just, I've seen people say on forums, Oh, I watch all the Bond films except for the Roger Moore ones and each to their own, but they suck. Um, <laughs> Connery, I don't. I agree with Colin. I don't think Never Say Never Again hurts his reputation. I think most people either haven't seen it, seen it once, and haven't rewatched it, or just don't really care or like the film. Um, he probably shouldn't have done it, and maybe Never Say Never Again would have been a better film if it was just a new random Bond or Lazenby. Um, but this man is James Bond. But when you rewatch it in order and you're doing a three-hour podcast per episode, you do start to notice a lot of his flaws. And I think people remember Connery more so than actually analysing the films. And that's fine. You're allowed to just remember the actors for your nostalgia factor. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. But when you do do, like, what, 15 hours worth of talking about Sean Connery, 
you do start to notice those. Uh, he was kind of bored here. Uh, he's not that into it there. He doesn't deliver that line very well. Um, he's fat here. So but <laughs> I still still maintain that uh, Diamonds are forever. He was not bored and he was having a ball. People say it's his worst performance. I reject that notion, but uh, whatever. Uh, and we'll talk a lot more about the Bonds in our rankings of the Bonds. These are just brief little opinions. And on to Dalton. Again, I'm the kind of the middleman here, maybe the only person who's mixed on Dalton because it seems like people either love him or hate him. I just, again, I'm sounding like a broken-down record, but given that third film, because I think you both agreed that Licence to Kill, he hugely improved his performance from The Living Daylights. Um so that third one, and don't get rid of Gold, Goldeneye or anything, had that third one in the early 90s. I know that's melding with history, but I do think people would have a different perception, but instead he kind of gets remembered, well, <laughs> remembered as the forgotten Bond at the late uh, late 80s. Like, as I said, I was talking to my dad, he didn't even know Timothy Dalton was a James Bond, <laughs> and he's seen a lot of the films, and he's like, oh, who's that guy? So <laughs> I think he's the forgotten Bond, but he does do a lot of things well, and I do think he does great action. <laughs> Maybe I'm not as high as Ben on his relationship with the women, but I still think he does it pretty well, um, Cara and him at the fun fair. <laughs> um, so I don't think my opinion has gone up or down for Dalton, which is the one Bond so far that it really hasn't changed my opinion at all, so... Yeah, we say goodbye to three Bonds in one decade, and then it's really opening it up for the new era of Bond, which we'll, we'll talk about in a minute well, or soon. Obviously, two reboots, essentially, in our next two of these. Um, yeah, so, it's about to change a lot. Yeah, very much so. Um, I guess really in our first part of the um, decade episodes, we the other bit here that we sort of talk about is uh, elements uh, that uh, not only were introduced in the 80s and that continued on and... Then I guess elements that um, were introduced in the 80s but sort of were very unique to the 1980s. Um, I think it's it's maybe a little bit more difficult as we get on uh, forward into this point with some of these, uh, particularly heading into sort of two reboot eras of the of the franchise. But sort of, I mean, we talked a lot about in our 70s one, how, say, like the, the female characters... Um, you know, obviously the 70s was a huge era for like sort of women's rights and everything in the 80s. Now we really kind of essentially have a quality. I'm not going to say quality has even been achieved today, but as close as I guess, you know, better quality than we had in the 70s and the 60s. Better quality. <laughs> Which obviously led to, you know, again, more of these attempts at bond equals so to speak, which um, I really think takes off more so in the 90s and and to an extent, the 2000s. But, um, you know, they tried it, uh, you know, not the best decade, I guess, for Bond women, but um, obviously we had uh, Mustache, For Your Eyes Only, was a very complex kind of um, different character there, which I think stayed on in Bond. They really sort of try to keep that up uh, in terms of um, how that went, but it was obviously still partly there in the 60s and 70s. And, 
you know, if we look at, say, moving forward right through to Pam, you know, we obviously we had Anya in the 70s in terms of, you know, she was a, an agent too. But, um, you know, Pam obviously worked with the CIA and then we kind of have that moving forward into the, the 90s. Um, I've gone blank on a name again. Michelle Yeoh from Tomorrow Never Dies. Oh, oh, <laughs> the other woman. The other woman. Um, <laughs> God, what is wrong with me? Why don't you bring up Paris Carver again? <laughs> <laughs> I always remember Paris Carver, but I always forget Michelle Yeoh's character. Um, Wei Lin. Wei Lin. Thank you. Um, and then obviously, you know, Jinx moving forward and everything like that. Oh. But, um, you know, they, they tried it there. I think um, more so would say the the villains, they, they sort of come back a lot. We talked in the 70s in terms of... Um, it wasn't a really good decade for the villains. It was a better decade for the henchmen. I think it kind of switches around a little bit in the 80s. You know, we have a better decade for the villains, uh, not so much for the, the henchmen with maybe a couple exceptions. And that possibly balances out a little bit more into the 90s um, that we have sort of a real even spread, I feel, of villains and henchmen. You know, it's not really a standout on either side of it there. Um, and I guess in terms of stunts, um, you know, that was really introduced in the 70s, but again, we still kind of had that element. I think it's a lot more violence, I guess, really, is the real key thing that comes into the 80s, which stays around, a, a, you know, a fair bit moving forward. Obviously, we talked a lot about License to Kill, um, how sort of uh, heavily influenced by this big string of 80s action movies that were coming out. So it was a big thing in the 1980s to really sort of, you know, amp up your violence level, had a lot of that in License to Kill. Um, and I guess also toning down of sex a little bit is something that we really didn't touch on too much in the 70s, uh, in 70s, uh, in Living Daylights and License to Kill. Obviously, the 80s, very um, much in the grips of the AIDS epidemic, and it was kind of always rumoured that, particularly with the Dalton films, it was toned down on sex due to this um, issue. Uh, always denied, but I think Dalton came out recently a few years ago in an interview and basically confirmed that was the case. So that really stayed in the 80s, I feel, as well, um, that, you know, let's tone down the sex slightly a little bit um, and moving forward we obviously get the sex back and a little bit more graphically with some of the sex too in the 90s and the 2000s but um, yeah I, I'm sort of stretching I feel a little bit for real elements because I, I would love to hear kind of you two bring this out because maybe I'm forgetting some obvious ones here I don't know um, no I think you covered most of it <laughs> the the one thing that I think I mean we all knew coming in this was going to be an entire decade dedicated to just one director john glenn and unlike even guy hamilton or terence young who did multiple movies but those movies all had a different feel to it i think john glenn's movies all had a very consistent feel to it they all felt like it was the same franchise the same world and that's something that they haven't done i mean we we have two directors since the 80s who have done a second movie and nobody who's ever done a third so martin campbell did a second movie but those two movies were 11 years apart and, what, four or five films apart in the franchise. And Sam Mendes is now doing two back-to-back. Um, John Glenn was there for the whole decade, and that's something that you know we definitely uh, uh, didn't talk as much about during, during our rewatches. We'd always mention John Glenn, but I think it was kind of lost. You just get used to the fact that it's the same guy making the movies, that that's very unusual for the Bond movies. You know, Lewis Gilbert did a couple, but Lewis Gilbert's were stretched out, you know, originally 10 years between his first two movies. Uh, so they really 
stuck with dedicated crews during those days. And what's going to change, especially the nineties is that every movie is supposed to have its own feel. They, they really embraced having a different director every time and, uh, across the board different crews and everything um i think that in some ways it helps the 80s in some ways it hurts it because what helps is that you do have this consistent decade and the movies weren't really as scattered as they were in the 70s you weren't going from uh spy who loved me to a moonraker but the area where it's kind of hurt is that the movies kind of all just blend together in a way and uh, they do lose a little bit of the uh, epicness. Um, I think the only other thing that really sticks with the the 80s, and it's not something that was introduced in the 80s, but something that kind of dropped off after this, is that the movies took themselves more seriously going forward. And even through the Dalton movies, which again, it's strange that they're often credited as being the most serious movies and free of all gags and gimmicks, because I think there were in some ways more gags and gimmicks in them. But the movies all had this kind of uh, fantasy feel to it. You know, you could have a serious movie like The Living Daylights, and then you could have a guy throwing milk bombs. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it almost seems to be like this James Bond world from the 60s that stuck around through the 70s and 80s, where it was kind of like a bit of a cartoony universe. And even though we have some ridiculous things in the Brosnans coming ahead, you know, like a guy who can't feel pain, they all seem to take themselves as movies more seriously so that a bit of the irony is lost on these uh, goofy characters and gags that we see coming up, even though the movies as a whole with invisible cars are more goofy going forward. They take themselves more seriously. So some of the fun is lost on that, I think. Well, one thing that stayed in the eighties was of course the cold war, which Hmm. doesn't really, doesn't really apply to License to Kill, but definitely The Living Daylights, which is one of the most spy films we've had in Bond. And, like, of course, that's a real-world thing, but that hugely affected the series, as we'll get to. Um, of course, there was the six-year gap, but then we came back, and it was like, can Bond live in a post-Cold War world? So... That is one thing that really... And that's part of the reason why you view... License to Kill and Goldeneye so differently. I say License to Kill was the last of the 80s. Like That was obviously not a Cold War film. But that is one thing that changed Bond forever, and I'm sure we'll have different changes. Like, and then we'll get to Casino Royale, and maybe that's more of a terrorist-type thing post-9-11. So there are all these different um, real-world elements that affect the films. Um, and then, of course, the other one is... Cubby Broccoli was the license to kill was the last real one that he was involved in. I don't know his extent in GoldenEye, but I think this was the last one he was got a producer credit for, and then obviously he passed away not long after. Hmm. Uh, so it was like a complete generation of Bond almost after the 80s, um, which I'm sure will continue for many, many, many years to come. And then the other thing, I guess, one thing that really hurt the 80s, not so much... Uh, continued on or stayed or really it's just one thing about the 80s is the fact that it's the characters as a whole are really hurt in this decade Um, and maybe that's because they're straying away from the Fleming source material like Fear Eyes only used a bit of uh, Risico in there 
uh, Living Daylights used a bit of their short story in that. So they still included parts of Fleming, but there was obviously no more Fleming novels left besides Casino Royale. And I'm not sure if that's the exact reason, but then, like, we all love, uh, well, not all of us, but most of us, two-thirds of us love Zoran and Mayday. Um, They're great, but then you look at it like, the eclectic bunch of figures only of Christatos and uh, Locke and Krieger and like whatever, and then you get to Octopussy, like eh, they're a bit better, but Gobinda, uh, not the greatest, Mishka and Grishka, uh, the Living Daylights, Brad Whitaker, one of the worst villains ever. Um, and you guys were more of a fan, but Necros, like, whatever. <laughs> and then we were, we were a bit higher on Sanchez and Dario, but still compared to the older movies, it's just... And then the women, Stacy and Pam and Kara and Mustacha, they just don't hold a candle. Octopussy, they don't hold a candle to these earlier 60s and even 70s Bond girls. Um so just the characters as a whole took a huge hit, I think, in just memorable characters and interesting characters. And then we had the Barry Manilow money penny <laughs> and the what what did we call it? Uh Judy Lee or <laughs> well, uh, I kinda Gordon Dench, I think we yeah, were calling this it, yeah. M Gordon Dench. <laughs> so even the MI six crew were taking a bit of a hit and Choose will soon his role will diminish film by film as well when we get to it. So characters, I think they improved on that by the nineties and returned to more of the sixties and seventies around the whole board, except for Samantha Bob. Well, that's, that's, we'll get to that. that's definitely yeah, good point there. One thing actually, I'll just quickly add too is um, <laughs> GoldenEye is the first Bond film to use CGI, so we uh, sort of really um, out of, as of out of the 80s we're now into a computer generated world that also goes into the pre-title sequences no longer will we sort of rely on random naked women um just doing shit and whatever like we focus a lot more on the computer moving forward polaroid pitch yes um so it's kind of bye-bye to the non-computer generated effects and entering into yeah the world of computers um so kind of just one thing to add kind of following up on uh what Noah said and also something you said earlier, Ben, the whole idea of the Bond girls as equals. Um, there's a lot of talk going on right now about, you know, the, the, the increased importance of Bond girls. And uh, I think there's some unfair criticism being thrown at some of the past Bond girls. I think the eighties is a really interesting decade to look at that because everybody always has this idea that if you're going to have a strong female lead, she should be an equal to bond. And I think that the eighties kind of proves that that doesn't work. The fact is there's only one bond in the movie. If you're making an equal to bond, all you're really doing is diminishing both characters. And that's one of the problems with Melina and Pam. Um, you could even say Stacy in a certain way is that when the, the characters, the female leads are essentially saving, serving the same purpose as bond you're diminishing both of them. And the most important thing is just have an interesting character. And I think it bothers me so often that people think that all the female leads need to be an equal to bond instead of thinking there's nothing wrong with them simply being a good character for what they are. Um, Going all the way back to a lot of my defenses of Mary Goodnight, you know, people say, well, she's just 
dopey comic relief. It's like, well, how come if you're a male supporting character, being the dopey comic relief is considered a good role, but if you're a female character, it's a bad role. And I think sometimes people just need to get over it and say, let's just have an interesting female lead uh, instead of always needing it to be a Bond equal. Because this decade, the 80s was full of Bond equals that didn't work because they simply weren't interesting. And I think there's improvements made in the 90s by not necessarily always making them equal to Bond, although they do try that, but giving them their own distinctive personalities. It's a very good point. I like it. Um, all right. Uh, speaking of Bond girls and things like that, we get into our second half of questions here where we kind of rank our favourites of uh, certain categories and uh, things like that. So what perfect way to start off with... Uh, Best main girl and best secondary girls. Let's let's group these together. So yeah, who was your favourite main girl and your favourite secondary girl of the eighties? Well, who have we got before we? Um... Oh right, okay. Well, <laughs> so if We've we got Mustache, well, Mustache, BB, Countess, um, then we sort of what Magda, Octopussy. Um, do we include Domino? Domino. Oh god, are we counting those? Um, Mayday, Stacy, that... Mayday's a hench. Oh, okay, yeah, uh, that Russian... Although he oh, sleeps she becomes, with her. She becomes a hero uh, in the end, doesn't debatable. she? It's debatable. It's debatable. Yeah. The, the random Russian... Yeah, she would fall in there. Russian chick in that, um, Kara... Why don't you remember her name? <laughs> <laughs> Poor woman's Tanya. Um, random woman on boat at the beginning of Living Daylight. No, um... <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then Pam and Loopy Lupe, I guess it's kind of our options there, really, isn't it? Yeah, great. Okay, well, I guess I'll go first, considering <laughs> Ben has a pause there. <laughs> um, if if I'm gonna pick a main girl, it's a lot tougher because this is what I was saying is that they were trying so hard to make them equals to Bond that they were giving up on good personalities uh, in the process. <sighs> I don't really think there's any that I loved of the main Bond girls. I mean, we have including Never Say Never Again 6, and Domino is a remake of probably my favorite, or at least one of my top three uh, favorite Bond girls up until this point, and I think she's easily the bottom of these choices. I think the only one that even kind of works is Kara, and uh, I was critical even in how her character was uh, in The Living Daylights. But the idea of her character, I think, works better. And I would say the same thing with Melina, is that the idea of her character was good. It just it wasn't pulled off by the right actress, and it wasn't developed exactly as it should have been. Um, Kara was okay. And again, this isn't a criticism of the decade. It's just they didn't always have the best actresses. And uh, I think the only time they really had a very experienced actress starring in one of these movies was Octopussy and her character just made no sense whatsoever. So Kara is the only one that I think I'd be slightly partial towards. The secondary girls, I think, often are the more interesting ones, um, no matter what decade you're in. And I know I, I said a lot about Lupe in uh, License to Kill, how much I liked her, but again, it's the same problem that they just they didn't go as far as they needed to with the character and the actress wasn't, her performance wasn't quite good enough. Um, I hate to mention this movie, but I think the only one that really stands out as a, a real scene-stealing character is Fatima in Never Say Never Again. Uh, the, the poor woman's Fiona Bush. Bush. 
Fatima's bush. Um, <laughs> yeah. And and again, I don't think that it was a perfect character, but as we talked about in that episode, she really was over the top just in the right way. And her character was insane and crazy, and it, it, it was the only character that really seemed to understand the movie needed a bit of that camp to it. Um, I would love to see Fatima in another movie. And it's sad because the actress, Barbara Carrera, was, of course, famously um, being scouted for a role in Octopussy when she turned it down to be in Never Say Never Again instead. Um, I'm assuming Magda, which, uh, while we're on the topic, I'll also throw out Magda. I was a big fan of Magda. Uh, as I, uh, <laughs> if kind she of, doesn't talk. If she doesn't talk, yeah. Maybe my words were a little bit twisted there, but the, the, the basic thing being, again, that just the performance, the performance of the actress was just not strong enough to carry the amount of dialogue she had. But the character itself, I thought, was really fun, especially with her escape, you know, unraveling uh, her her dress, doing the acrobatic stuff. That was a really fun quirk to the character. But I don't think she comes in close to Fatima. Uh, I'm just going to say Magda is not going to be in my head. <laughs> um, She's not this... cardboard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is like these six girls would be some of my bottom six. Like this is the worst choices we've ever had. There's not even like an obvious one like Anya or something. Um, I'm tempted to say Stacy, <laughs> just because, I don't know. The best? <laughs> <laughs> the best? Uh, I just remember Noah's word saying this has to be one of the worst Bond girls ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't put Mustacha up there. I'm not a fan of hers at all. Positives are she does have backstory and characterization, and that is definitely an up there. And I love she has a signature weapon, Face so that's hair. pretty cool. <laughs> um, yeah, she has a freaking crossbow. That's awesome. But she's just one of the most bland Bond girls we've ever had. I think I'm probably going to have to agree with Colin Kara by default, maybe, because she's decent, I guess. Um Pam is okay. Uh, I don't don't know if I'd say what Ben said, but um, and who else? Octopus? No, I'm sorry. Uh, so yeah, I guess I'm going to say Kara. This is the worst bunch we've ever had. Um, but they, uh, they've all got little positives. As for secondary, not Magda, not BB. Um, <gasps> <laughs> Maybe BB's trainer does that count? Brink. Uh, <laughs> yes. I'm not going to count Mayday because I need her for a different category. Um, Living Daylights didn't have one unless you count Boatwoman, which I don't know. She was hot. Maybe put Boatwoman up there. <laughs> <laughs> it was a reflection of this decade. Oh, definitely Boatwoman. <laughs> <laughs> what about? Uh, from Never Say Never Again, like, was that woman on boat? Uh, was she Australian? Was she British? Maybe we could put her on. <laughs> I wasn't a huge Lupe fan, so what are my options? Um, Manny Penny. Guess I'm going to have to say the Countess, but they could have done so much better with her character, but I guess I'm going to say Countess. Mrs. Brosnan. Jenny Flex, maybe. Let's put Jenny <laughs> Flex in. Who? What's his name? What's her name? Um, oh, Paula. Tickles my Tchaikovsky. 
Fatima Bush is up there. I forgot to mention her. I just forget. Never say never again. Uh, obviously, okay, we won't count Mayday then in this because she goes in Henchman. Um, yeah, I'm tossing up between Cara and Pam. Um, although I, I'm a, I'm a moustache apologist. I do like moustache, and I still stand by the fact that I think she's a very beautiful woman, even with facial hair. Um, <laughs> doesn't have facial hair, by the way. Well, Much. you started, Mustacha. Um, look, Cara's already gotten some love. I'm giving it to my girl Pam. Hello, Pam. This is the only <laughs> oh. the only podcast in modern society that will give Pam Bouvier some love. Um, Pam Bouvier and there goes our last listener. Thanks ages. for tuning in to Double R Seven. She, she's I don't know. She's she's. She's tough. She can fly a plane. She can have long hair and short hair, preferably the long hair. Uh, Get with Bond way too early for plop. Shoot a shotgun. Such a versatile Bond girl. She could rock both the long and the short hair. (laughs) Name me one other Bond girl that has both long and short hair. She's (laughs) versatile. Um, but yeah, no, hello, Rosie Pam. Rosie Carver, long and short. No, oh, don't, bro. (laughs) Just get over it, Colin. Rosie Carver is so seventies. Okay, like. Come on. Um, and, yeah, look. Her she transcends time and secondary space. Woman. Yes, right. Secondary woman. Secondary woman. Do I need to? Do I oh, need to? No. Come Insert on. She now. starts with a B. She ends with a B. She is apparently <laughs> a virgin, but whatever. She's not. My girl, Lynn Holly. Hello, BB. Come back. We oh, want to see you again. Ice cream. Uh, hashtag bring back BB for Spectre. Um, hashtag woo. <laughs> and again just for some more behind the scenes stuff if anybody wants to know who does the write-ups on our episodes every week <laughs> look to the one guy who is actually praising bb who wrote in the road up for your eyes only why do we all love bb so much and why do we love kite surfing and what's the deal with jeans <laughs> i'm so keeping and that what's in what's the problem with women with short hair good good memory i'm gonna remember that why do we all hate the short hair women. Why are Colin and Noah idiots for not liking this film? <laughs> and why should women keep their hair long? All on license to kill. Oh, moving on. Um, we've already taken a few shots at uh, this, so this may be just as hard of a category. Uh, but the villain and the henchman. Uh, so... 80s, I mean, for villains, as we said, we had Cristados, we had Kamal Khan, we had uh, Zorin. You could take your pick of, I guess, any of them, uh, the, the main ones. So I guess we can narrow it down to Whitaker and uh, Koskov for Living Daylights, and then Sanchez. And then for the henchmen, there's what, Locke, um, Govinda, Kriegler, um, Mishka and Grishka. Yeah, Mishka and Grishka. The esteemed bunch. Uh, Mayday. There's there's a high spot there. Living Daylights. <laughs> I love the change in tone. And there's Mayday. Mayday. Necros, Noah's oh. favorite. Uh, Dario and I don't know. You include we didn't. I just realized we didn't even talk about Milton Crest in the License to Kill episode. Oh, his head and his character. His character came from the short story, which is funny. Um, yeah, there's a decent group there, I what guess. About Wayne uh, Newton? For me, <laughs> oh yeah, there's Joe Butcher, Professor Joe Butcher too. Truman Lodge. <laughs> Shut up with Truman Lodge already! Get off my podcast. James Sinjin's mind. 
if I'm going to go for a main villain, um, I know all the Christopher Walken fans out there that think if Christopher Walken did it, it must the be gun, brilliant. All right. uh, I'm I'm going to go with Kamal Khan. What, what am I losing? Did I did I miss something? You're not meant to answer yet. It's meant to be no one. We changed this. Don't you listen to pre-production meetings? I don't think we mentioned this at a pre-production meeting. But go ahead. You had to last. Yeah, again, it's not a great bunch like the women. Um, I think there's some clear better choices here. Maybe this gives some more props to a view to kill. Uh, there's a few honourable mentions. I think Koskov's pretty good, but obviously we can't put him because his defection didn't make it into the Hall of Fame. Um, <laughs> I don't think I was as high on Sanchez and Dario as you guys were. And whatever on Truman Lodge and Milton Crest, um, no thanks. Uh, so all love was fun, but I don't think he can be my top. I like Khan, but maybe not as much as, I, as some people. Christatus can go to hell. Whitaker can go to hell. Some of the worst villains in the history of Bond. So it's going to have to be, and I know Colin is really just hating this guy apparently, but it has to be Christopher Walken Zoran. And I don't think it's just because he's Christopher Walken. I think Zoran is a very good villain. He's not the best. He has some issues, that's for sure, but he's great. As for Henchman, uh, no thank you, Locke. No thank you, Krieger. Um, Necros, go back to your Speedos and Milk Bombs. Dario, eh. Um So it's going to have to be Mayday. She's great. Easily a top 10 hench- henchman slash woman. Uh, and it's been a while, like the 70s was the age of the henchmen, and then that dropped off in the 80s, so it's good that we've got a really strong one in a video kill. So video kill takes double points in this round. Tony, you like the movie better. Um, yeah, this is tough for me for villain, because it's got two of probably my top five, top ten villains in the history of Bond. Um yeah, Christados, I'm not as down as him as you are, but, um, yeah, no, he's not going to get it. Khan, yeah, no, he's all right. Um, Daylight's, obviously, between Koskov and Whitaker. Neither of them are going to take it. Koskov will just hug Whitaker to death, and Whitaker will take his, like, 80 to kill people. So it, it's, it's oh, God, it's between Zoran and Sanchez, and, oh, this is so... This is the hardest choice I've had to make, I think, in this entire series. Um... Nothing Ugh. happens with your choice, Ben. Like, uh, after this, you'll probably forget about it and just <laughs> never think of this again. Nothing happens. For, right. for the pure fact that you you took Zoran, I'll have to go with Sanchez. And that's not to diminish Zoran. Love me, Zoran. Just love him so much. But, yeah, look, Sanchez isn't going to get any love in this spot I don't feel from Colin. Uh, I don't know yet. I'm just being uh, presumptuous there with my uh, predictions. But... Yeah, Sanchez, love him, evil bastard. Robert Darby, fantastic actor, and just absolutely love him. So, yeah, wow, I'm doubling up on the uh, license to kill love here. For hench hench people, uh, yeah, not even going to bother stringing this out. Mayday, by far, she's a top 10 hench person. So, um, yeah, narrowly beats out Truman Lodge. Only kidding. She shits all over everybody this decade with her abilities. Special mention to Gabinda, just because he has a nice turban. <laughs> Um, 
Well, I, I'm going to give kind of an honorable mention out there that I know Noah's not going to support, but um, Never Say Never Again, Largo, oh, huge improvement yes. over Thunderball. Uh, uh, forgetting about Never Say Never of, Again. <laughs> yeah. Again. And again, for a movie we hate so much, we're at least high on Fatima and Largo, at least a few of us are. Uh, I don't think he really holds a candle to uh, some of the stronger Bond villains, but he kind of had the right level of creepiness to him that the original character was missing. So just kind of a shout out to him for that. The main villains, you know, funny thing is, again, I don't hate Max Oren or Sanchez. Um, I just, I find it strange that people praise them as much as they do. I think it has more to do with the fact they were in a weak decade because I don't think either character is that strong. And I think the actors both have done much better jobs. Um, Walken especially I mean it's not nobody's ever going to mention it as the greatest Walken performance ever uh, or even it's it's more just like if you imagine Christopher Walken now playing that role I think he nails it but just didn't quite know what he was doing at the time with Sanchez again I've, I said it in the episode he was a much better villain in both Die Hard and The Goonies and uh, I, I don't think he really nailed the character but having said that those would be some of the better villains of this decade uh, if Koskov had been given the proper amount of screen time and they hadn't just thrown away you know, his what should have been his final showdown with Bond, just with, oh, we're going to send him to prison. He just ends up whining and being dragged out of there. Koskov could have taken this easily. But in my opinion, the only one that really, uh, really lived up to classic villains in this decade was Kamal Khan. And again, that's not through his character being developed enough. It was just how charismatic the actor Louis Jordan was and uh, how much personality he brought to the role and how many times he was able to say the name Octopussy in such a <laughs> bizarre way. Um, his showdowns with Roger Moore are just so good. And I think that's the thing that's missing with Zorin and with Sanchez is that those face-to-face -face scenes with Bond were just like dynamite in Octopussy. I love uh, the interactions that he had with Roger Moore. For the henchmen, again, it's a really weak decade. I mean, you can cancel Locke out of there immediately. Uh, Kriegler's out immediately. Uh, I think that Dario can even be considered out immediately. Truman Lodge, I'm, I'm ashamed that Apostus. that name's even brought up on this. Yeah. Apostus, yeah. <laughs> Everybody loves Apostus. I don't um, think we even brought up Apostus on our episode. We didn't, and I need to bring it up now. Apostus in Fear Eyes Only, watch him. The man is never even looking in the right direction when he's on camera. <laughs> he pulls a gun on people and seems to be looking at the floor. It's like he kept looking at the camera. John Glenn's like, I'm either firing you or you can look anywhere but the camera right now. Um, yeah, Mayday is the obvious choice. And I, I, I want to spend more time talking about my secondary choice just because we've talked so much about Mayday. But you can't pick anybody other than Mayday. But Necros was... The type of Bond villain that you would have seen in the 60s. He's silent. He has a weird quirk about him, like Odd Job. He has an intimidating physical presence. He's probably the only henchman of this decade that uh, that does live up to at least what we know of the, the 60s henchmen. Not the 70s. The 70s were a little bit different. A lot bigger in most ways. But Necros was like a classic 60s henchman. I like that. Uh, Gobinda was almost there. The thing that was missing, and we talked about in the episode with Gobinda, was that saw. If they had given him the yo-yo saw, I think we'd be talking about Gobinda more. But unfortunately, just through not a quirky enough character, he falls short. Mayday's the obvious choice, so I think this is a unanimous for all of us. And I don't think there's any way Mayday wasn't going to be picked in this. All right. Next up, we have 
the best ally during this period, which improvement on the 70s, I must say. Uh, so we've got what we've got Colombo. Um, feel like this is going to be an easy one, but let's we'll see. Um, we've also got VJ. Um, oh, and Luigi Ferrara. We mustn't forget <laughs> Luigi. Um, were there any more in Octopussy? I think it was just VJ. Then we had Tibbet, so Godfrey Tibbet in Vidor Kill. We had Saunders in The Living Daylights. And then License to Kill, we had Dilla. Sharky, that's the one. <laughs> oh, yeah, we didn't, we didn't mention Della in <laughs> Secondary Girls because she's more of a Bond girl than a Felix girl. Um, <laughs> and Honeymoon. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so we've got uh, Luigi, we've got Columbo, we've got VJ, we've got Tibbet, we've got Chuck Saunders, Lee? we've got Chuck I was Lee. Say, ben was going to remind you of the other one, Chuck Lee. <laughs> <laughs> and we've got Sharky. And we should also maybe extend on this and say the best Felix, oh. which we've got. <laughs> Is that even a question? Well, I've got some things to say about that, but we've got... Uh, We've got Bernie Casey, we've got uh, John Terry, and we've got David Hedison, which I know what the answer is going to be, but I've got some things to say with that. Well, I, guess I suppose Bernie I'd better not go first on this one, so someone <laughs> else jump in. And are we lumping in the best money penny? Um, clearly, never say never again, money penny wins that one. Um, well, maybe, actually. Well, look, bringing never say never again, um, you know, like... I, I like Bernie Casey. Oh, yeah, Nigel Small Forces. <laughs> oh, God, boo! <laughs> Not Mr. Bean. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, Bernie Casey, I like Bernie, but I've got to go with David Hedison. I, I said he was the best ball, uh, best lighter, and I'll stand by that fact. Um, yeah, okay, so um, it's definitely not going to be Saunders. He can go fuck himself. Um, Pushkin, <laughs> did we mention Pushkin? Pushkin's pretty good. Yes, he can. Is, yeah. he, is he? Yeah. I guess yeah. Gogol probably counts in a way too. Yeah. I, I like VJ. I don't think you two are too high on VJ, but I, I don't mind him. Bill Tanner, was he introduced or did he come into the 70s? He's more of an MI6 crew though. Okay, but, all right. Um, yeah, it, look, I'm stretching this out because there's one obvious answer, and it's Columbo. Um, I'm just, I'm just trying to put honourable mentions out there. Now, Columbo wins it hands down. We talked him up so much in For Your Eyes Only as probably the best ally since Karen Bay, and I still stand by that. Um, you know, yeah, I like VJ. He's actually not too bad. Um, um, I liked um, Cameron Shah in Living Daylights. Um, he was pretty all right. Oh, I guess that counts. Is he? Do we not count him? Um, I guess so. And, yeah, I also didn't mind a bit of Tibbet because I just like the relationship between him and Bond. Uh, also, special note to uh, Man Woman with Big boobs who was motorboating. She was kind of an ally, wasn't she? <laughs> <laughs> In the living daylight. Who? <laughs> the man woman who motorboated the guy. <laughs> boobs. Why are you calling her a man woman? What film was this? The Living Daylight. The Living Daylight. Dalton. Um, she distracted the security guard by shoving him into her cleavage. Oh. <laughs> How did you forget the man her? Woman. 
Um, but yeah, Colombo, hands oh, down, shit, one of the greatest allies in the history of Bond, and easily a top top five ally. I'll put it out there. Go Colombo. Uh, let's get Felix out of the way first because this is uh, an easy one. Although I do want to say for for a movie that we still all say we hopefully will never watch again, never see never again, um, we have a lot of praise for some of the supporting cast in it because I think Bernie Casey was really good as Felix and in a better movie, I think that he could have been one of the great Felixes. But, I mean, David Hedison's really the only one in this decade. And again, I'm going to say on that, we didn't talk a lot about him in the episode, but... David Hedison living let die way better than License to Kill is almost like he's playing two different characters. I just, considering the movie is all about him, he really should have featured more in it, and his character didn't really make a lot of sense. But he was bringing experience to the role, and um, he brought personality, which is something that John Terry was really lacking. Um, so he's the obvious choice. For Ally, I mean, again, there's no question about it. Before I even talk about Columbo, I'll just say Tibbet in any other decade would almost be a clear choice for best ally as well. Tibbet was fantastic, especially like getting Patrick McNee to play an ally. It was just a brilliant idea, and the way that him and Moore played off each other was fantastic. Columbo is so good that I'm wondering if we eventually do an allies episode. I'm actually tossing back and forth whether Columbo could make my number one even over someone like Karen Bay. Uh, he was so good. And uh, if he had had a little bit more screen time, I don't think there's any question he would be the best. Uh, ever, there's no way that anybody could dislike Columbo. I would love, if anybody out there doesn't like Columbo, I would love to hear the reason why, because I cannot understand why. He is probably the most uh, entertaining character that we had in the entire decade of the 80s, including villains. Uh, yeah, I brought up the Felixes. <laughs> Not a lot to choose from, but I just yeah wanted to give props to Bernie Casey because I do think if he was in an Eon film, like in one of the Daltons or Moors, that he would be viewed as a, a great Felix. Um, and he is still a great Felix because they the Felix kill count. Um, and then sure? John. T- okay. Oh, sorry, huh? I thought I was muted there. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure he was quite good. <laughs> <There we> go. <laughs> Conversation there with background. your wife. Um, okay. Yeah. I said he was good, and I stand by my opinion. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. <laughs> go ahead. Uh, Pardon the interruption. Uh, um. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Uh, but yeah, of course, it has to be David Hedison. He's in my eyes, the second best Felix. And John Terry, if they gave him more to do, I think he had potential, but he's probably at the bottom. As for Allies, this decade is a lot better than the 70s was for Allies. I want to give honourable mention to Tibbet because him and Moore's relationship is just so great. Dishonourable mention to Chuck Lee and Sharky and Saunders. And then VJ, I'm not much of a fan, but he's better than a lot of the ones I just mentioned. Um, has to be Columbo. He really lights up that film. And I like that he's originally positioned as the villain. And then it turns out he's not the villain, but he's still not technically a, a good guy. He's more like Draco than anything. Definitely not the top ally of all time, like some may have him, but I still think he is easily in the top 10, hands down, if not top five. I love Columbo as a vill- uh, as an ally. He just helps that film up so much. 
Well, I'm glad you brought up Felix actually, because just thinking about it, we won't get to talk to about him. Uh, talk about him for another two decades. So, um, mm. yeah. Anyway. Not much Felix in these films. No. Anyway, uh, all right. Uh, moving swiftly we along. Talk Jack Wade, lucky <laughs> us. Because <laughs> uh, your favourite Jack Wade. <laughs> uh, swiftly moving on because we're sort of running out of time, really, in terms of the timeliness we have for these episodes. Uh, so, best pre-title sequence. Uh, so obviously going through them, um, so we have, uh, well, the Mr. Bond, Mr. Bond, um, followed by the plane in the shed where nobody died at the hands of Bond, um, <laughs> never say never oh. again, the training sort of video sequence, <laughs> um, a beautiful kill, skiing, beach boys, um, living daylights, the, the Gibraltar chase and, um, you know, oh, if only I could find the real man. And, of course, uh, fishing for Sanchez in uh, Licence to Kill. Slow-mo feeling. <laughs> Some old man boobs. <laughs> Is that the same person from Living Daylight? Um, let me see. I, I, again, I think that the pre-title scenes took a bit of a hit in this decade. I think they really were struggling with the balance of seriousness because pre-title scenes all have to be fun and they all have to, especially with the Moors, they have to be a little bit over the top. And I'm not sure that they really found the balance, although it is interesting if you really look at it that in all of these, uh, with the exception of maybe uh, License to Kill, or even with License to Kill, I would say the pre-title scenes are still some of the goofier aspects of the movie and just the most outright fun. But I don't think they're as memorable as we had in the 60s or 70s. I think, for me, the obvious choice would be Octopussy. Uh, I think it had a little bit of everything, and uh, strangely enough, it probably is the most serious of all the pre-title scenes we had in the the uh, 80s, maybe with the exception of Living Daylights. But um, yeah, I, I love the the plane going through the hangar, uh, the, the fake horsey. Uh, I know Ben was a big fan of that. Um, <laughs> Him assuming an identity, Bond assuming an identity as a Cuban. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff in the Octopussy opening, uh, all the way up to the filler up line. Uh, it, it was like the, the last uh, the last of the great stunts that we see in pre-title scenes, too, because obviously that's something that Moore was known for, you know, with the, the Spy Who Loved Me stunt and then the skydiving and Moonraker and everything. Uh, even with the hanging out of the plane in Fear Eyes Only, the helicopter... This, the snow job one was okay, uh, but I think there are some things that hurt it, just that it's another ski scene. So I think Octopussy really stands out as a very unique pre-title scene that wasn't too goofy. It just had the right balance. We didn't point this out in the episode, but is Octopussy the last pre-title sequence that doesn't have anything else to do with the film? Um, yeah, Tomorrow Never Dies. Yeah. Oh. Did that have nothing to do with it? I don't think so. No. no. That had, what did that had nothing to do with the main plot? Yeah. Yeah. We'll keep an eye out for that when we get to it. But I think you're right. Tomorrow never dies. But um, for me, it's an easy one. Well, special shout out to the Beach Boys because I'm a defender of that Yay. scene. I think it's fun. Whatever. <laughs> curse me. I don't care. Um, well, don't curse me. <laughs> don't <laughs> be a, do a solitaire. Noah has enough health problems as it is. Listen, <laughs> I don't need like a witch's curse on me on top of my <laughs> broken body. Um, leave me alone, solitaire. Uh, 
Yeah, easy answer, Living Daylights. It's easily in the top ten of my favourite pre-tars sequences, maybe top five. I think it's got great stunts. It's got a bit of a connection to the story without being really obvious, and it's got a Hall of Fame-worthy ending towards it. Um, so, yeah, this decade is pretty much lacking. Like all these questions, when we keep saying it's lacking with this decade, uh, the pre-dial sequence, but there's some decent ones in there, but it has to be Living Daylights for me. I think it's a great introduction to Dalton. Well, I'm going to be a defender and say that I don't think it's as bad that some of these ones, not as iconic as others, but I, I think they're still pretty good. Um, Fear Eyes Only can get fucked. Never Say Never Again can get <laughs> fucked. Um, Octopussy is fantastic. I love it. Um, View to a Kill is probably the weakest, although I do absolutely love the Beach Boys. It's fantastic. Living Daylights, I love. I'm as big a fan as you know, but just because it didn't get much love at the end of it, I'm giving it to Licensed to kill again i love the fishing for sanchez scene um you know you get to meet sanchez evil bastard even with slow-mo jiggly man boobies with um felix and i love the interactions in the car with um you know the wedding you got the ring i've got the ring and all that sort of stuff it's fun so yeah license to kill uh will take it for me um following the pre-title scenes we always go into the the main themes so um we could talk a little bit about the title sequences as well which i think were slightly different in the 80s <laughs> Uh, but the main themes we have, for your eyes only, um, the all-time high with or without fart effects. Make your own judgment on that. Uh, the never say never, never, never again. Um, <laughs> dance into the fire of you to a kill. Uh-huh, and not knowing how to speak English in the living daylights. And Gladys Knight and the Pips with License to Kill. Uh, I, I don't know, uh... I think it's a it's a very different uh, decade for the music. There were a lot of adjustments made along the way, but we have some memorable ones, if nothing else. Yeah, again, this is where the decade is lacking as well. But there's some good ones in there. Uh, I cannot defend License to Kill at all. Like that intro thing just kills it for me when she does that mumbling, um, and it's just a poor song. Uh, all time high, just. Don't don't talk to me. Um, and then straight after that came like what? Never say never again, never, and I never will. Never um, uh, that's going to be stuck in my head all night. Um, Fear eyes only. Yeah, it was okay. View to a kill. I mean, living daylights. Okay, view to a kill is the only standout one here for sure for the song. Definitely view to a kill, and I think we've already talked about why in the episode. As for the title sequence, that's a tough one. Not Sheena Reeston in the title sequence, that's for sure. Uh, view to a kill was people skiing and glow in the dark. Uh, All time high or oh, octopusy was just Bond em- embracing. Uh, yeah, it has to be just Stock by default. Shots. <laughs> Yeah, maybe by default it has to be woman drowning in the bath in the living daylight just because <laughs> it was a pretty crap decade for title sequences. There's nothing that stands out like the 60s or the 70s. Very crap decade for title sequences. The worst by far. Um, <laughs> they're also just etched in my memory as the same one, each film, the more I think about yeah, it. Um, I'm giving it to a view to a kill, though, because I like the glow-in-dark aspect, and also it wins because Cleavage and the 007 gets it uh, every time. Uh, songs, I'm more of a defender of the 80s. Um, I still think the 70s is the best decade, <laughs> right. had one bad song. 90s is probably the second best decade to me in terms of songs. But 80s, 
It's up there. Um, Octopussy is the living pile of shit in terms of all-time <laughs> high. That is the worst Bond song in the history of music. That's what those effects were meant to mean. Okay, <laughs> we get it now. Never say never again. No. Um, For Your Eyes Only, I I defended it. Not maybe as strongly as Colin did, but I, I like For Your Eyes Only. License to Kill. Fuck you, Noah Groves. That is an amazing song. Um, you leave Gladys alone. <laughs> Uh, Living Daylights, I was the only one who loves a bit of Norwegian mumbling. Um, it's great. But, yeah, no, I, I talked it up a lot in A View to a Kill. Uh, it's a top five Bond song, A View to a Kill, hands down. It's just such a great song, and I want to listen to it now because it's amazing. Uh, I think one thing that should be pointed out is that this is a decade where none of the songs really sound like Bond themes at all. Um, it was very experimental and... They tried, obviously, especially with all-time high, to kind of duplicate Nobody Does It Better very poorly. But this isn't really something where I think one opinion could be considered right or wrong because these don't sound like bomb themes. It almost is just which song do you like the best. I, I never used to like A View to a Kill as much as I do now after rewatching the movie, and it was that was one that probably stuck in my head even more than Never Say Never Again, but for a positive uh Particularly the the music part, not so much the lyrics and the singing, but the dun dun dun. Like I had that going in my head for probably two days after that. But at the same time, I really and I know this is more of a guilty pleasure one, but I love for your eyes only this song, and it's so cheesy. It's just an absolutely ridiculous song, but there's something about it that's just really catchy, and that's a song that I could listen to over and over again. Which one is probably the best song? A view to a kill. Which one will I listen to the most? For your eyes only, hands down. The title sequences, I'm going to give it to Living Daylights 2. As I said in that episode, it has all the things that are painfully bad about the 80s, but somehow the title sequence doesn't look dated. It kind of looks cool. So I think that's the only one that really worked in this decade. All right. Next up, we have the best Q scene. And that's something we didn't really talk about the eighties Q heavily featured in the eighties. It's not so much a Q scene, more so a Q movie, but best Q scene and best gadget. So I don't know if we'll run through them all Q scenes, like fear eyes only there's the <laughs> identogram, uh, octopusy. There's a lot of him showing up on the scene. Beautiful kill was him perving on them in the bath. Um, <laughs> Living Daylights, we had Ghetto Blaster, Jonathan Ross, um, License to Kill. He was pretty heavily featured as the uncle and showed up with the camera. And then the gadgets, there's a whole bunch of them, so you just pick out your favourite. But best cue scene and best gadget. Um, Look, I'm torn between two scenes. For your eyes only, just grumpy bastard cue. You look up. Was it Karen? Karen Karen or Sharon? Sharon. Sharon. Um, And the identigraph. (laughs) Oh, like, just so good. But I love him in License to Kill. I just love that he's so heavily involved in it. And, you know, he's out there and he's his uncle and... Just, oh, it's, it's so good. Ghetto Blast, a special nod. Yes, get stuff, Colin. It's great. Um, and, <laughs> yeah, for your eyes on, uh, sorry, Octopussy with the whole, you know, oh, no, we don't have time for that. Maybe later. Um, you know, horny Q. Um, and gadgets. Look, I, I'm giving, I'm giving the Q scene to license to kill just for the overall him out there on the scene. You're giving everything to license. I know. To kill. I'm, I'm really giving it up there. But, um, for sure, hands down, the best gadget of the decade is the identical. I still can't stop laughing. <laughs> yeah. 
It's the best. Oh, it's so good. It's not a banana cue. Um, oh, just it's so dated, but it's just hilarious at the same time. Um, oh, yes. Um, hello, Identigraph. I still want one in my house. Yeah, I'm gonna agree on the gadget. The Identigraph is brilliant. So. <laughs> like we said at the time, it's like build your own Sims character circa 1981. <laughs> it's just so bad. The fact that, that it's the biggest description ever. It's like, man, hair, <laughs> nose. Oh, that's him. <laughs> that that easily is not only the best gadget, but the best cue scene as well. Uh, but I think it's the best cue scene for the wrong reasons. I, I think there's two that um, that are probably more memorable scenes overall. And that's the thing is the cue was all over this decade. And it wasn't just that he had more screen time or more involved in the stories. It's that the scenes were quite good. Uh I think the two that are best is obviously, you know, Q in his hot air balloon at the end where it's like, not now, maybe later, perhaps. <laughs> um, Q with all the women all over him is amazing. And uh, also for your eyes only, the uh, bless me, father, for I have sinned. Uh, that's putting <laughs> yeah. it mildly 007. <laughs> that scene is just amazing. Even outside of that one liner, the fact that Q could have a serious scene with 007 and kind of go over the plot and, explain what was kind of a, a very complicated plot at that point. Uh, that one really worked. Uh, yeah, shout out to Ghetto Blaster, Boombox, still think that's great. Um, Pervy Q in the shower and View to a Kill with the little robot thing. Um, but I'm with you, the addendogram is really good. Uh, but I'm going to have to give it to the most inappropriate scene in the history of James <laughs> Bond is the camera in... <laughs> <laughs> what is it, Octopussy, in which is Bond, Cleavage Cam. <laughs> Cleavage Cam, in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out, on the big screen, which one of the most inappropriate scenes and, like, something you never, ever see in Bond today. Uh, I'm going to give it that because I just can't believe they actually did that in a movie. Um, but, yeah, it's really good. So, the uh, Q scene... I have to give it to Octopussy, maybe, just because that's hilarious with all the girls jumping onto Q, and we get to see Q, the womanizer, in his hot air balloon. And just the fact that Bond and Q fly in on a hot air balloon is great. So that's probably the best Q incident. Special note to uh, Fake Crocodile as well. Didn't mention that. Um... Yeah, and Bond Bond as a stingray. Yes. <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't bring that up. Uh, now, I'll, I might lump the last two together. Uh, so we have best vehicle battle and as well as our best climax battle. So final scene. Um, Very different in the 80s. Yeah, so climax. I... Some of the cars, we obviously have the Citroen from uh, For Your Eyes Only, uh, his Lotus. Oh, the Citrus. The Citrus, yes. <laughs> the uh, the Lotus that got blown up. Um, the Acrostar. The, uh, the the That weird submarine thing in For Your Eyes Only. Um, do we count the tuk-tuk in Octopussy? Um, <laughs> um, we had the return of the Aston Martins, of course, in um, Living Daylights. Um, the the taxi that got like ripped to bits in um, a view to a kill with a drunk oh. Frenchman, uh, the iceberg submarine. I guess you could count that. Let's <laughs> <laughs> not. Uh, and then final sequences. Uh, obviously we're looking at the whole mountain climb situation in for your eyes only. 
Um, it's Octopussy. It was um, the plane. It was the plane <laughs> chase. Yes, it was. Glad to see you remember. Uh, never Say Never Again. It was that nice-looking lake thing in the mountain. Um, View to Kill, obviously. We had it on the Golden Gate Bridge uh, and the airship and Zorin. Um, Living Daylights, the plane and, like, the big Hercules and flying at the back of that. And or I guess you could count the Whitaker battle, <laughs> and then also license to kill the truck chase, um, which you could also lump in as well as your vehicle battle as well. Um, I just want to say right off the bat, why did we even mention Never Say Never Again's climax? That was awful. Uh, still to this day, I, I go over my notes for episodes, and usually my notes are pretty bland and not very descriptive, and. I still get a laugh when I read my notes and never say never again describing the climax where I just, all I could write was Felix kills everybody and grandpa's airlifted out because that's <laughs> the explanation of the entire climax. Oh, those jetpacks we didn't. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah, that, let's be honest though. That one doesn't even come close to the others. This is something that the 80s never gave up. The 80s still had brilliant climaxes like all of ours. I would argue that the climaxes in the 80s might have been stronger than the 70s overall. Um, and the 70s had some really good ones, too. I think that uh, one that I'd cancel out right away would be A View to a Kill. Uh, there's nothing wrong with it. I, I just don't think that the movie itself or the climax are really as exciting as they should have been. Um, and Living Daylights, too, I think that there's the really good plain stunt in there but overall i don't really feel like there was an invested interest in the plan as to what you're going to stop you know the, the plan of the villains i think my two favorite movies of the decade are the easy choices for this for me for your eyes only and octopusy and i'm kind of torn between the two i think Fear eyes only has a classic climax that's often overlooked because it is so simple uh, the the rock climbing stuff is amazing on screen. Uh, the stunt is incredible, and the fact that the final showdown, you know, just a couple of fight scenes, uh, which leads to you know this very brief moment with Gogol was just fantastic. But Octopussy, if you're looking just for plain action, that one has to win. Uh, but I'd probably go with Fear Eyes only overall, just because of how serious they were able to take the climax. And for a vehicle battle, I love the A View to a Kill chase through Paris, as ridiculous as it is. Um, that cab stuff, it's so dumb, but it's just really fun. Uh, overall, though, I'd probably have to go with the uh, the submarine from um, uh, uh, For Your Eyes Only. It was a briefer thing. I don't know if we could really count that as a vehicle battle, but if we're just looking at it as a vehicle scene, which we also have written here, I think the submarine stuff with your eyes only just looked incredible on the screen. Uh, overall, I think the whole vehicle battles throughout and chase scenes were kind of down uh, from the 70s, but the climaxes were definitely up. Yeah, we've been groaning about all these categories, but the 80s did do different, unique, but good climaxes. But I would argue they also did pretty good vehicle battles uh, or scenes. Uh, serious shout out to the motorbike chase in Never Say Never Again. I also love the Paris chase in Vidal Kill. I think that's great. Um, I'm torn between two the citrus down the hill. I think that's so great. Cutting corners and the locals helping out, and the Aston Martin with the skis and the barnyard in the living daylights. Um, Nothing to declare. 
Nothing to declare. And I guess you would count the cello case as a vehicle too. Um, the, the cello case is a vehicle. <laughs> Best Bond vehicle ever. <laughs> well, they had to steer it. Um, I, I'm not going to count the trucks because I count that more as the climax. Um, I'll probably say the Living Daylights, Aston Martin, but huge shout out to the Citrus down the hill. That's one of my favourite scenes in Bond probably. Um, not the Tuk Tuk. As for the climaxes, there's a bunch of great ones. I'm going to rule out for your eyes only. I love the mountain climbing, but once they're on top of the hill, like Bond doesn't do anything and BB's just annoying. Um, then Gogol randomly shows up on the helicopter. Uh, Octopussy is fun with the horsey and the plane and the castle, but yeah, it's not the best. Um, never say never again. Well, never talk about that ever again. Uh, view to kill. I yeah, I actually like that maybe more than Colin does. I always get vertigo with that, and I love the battle on top of using the location. So that's up there. Living daylights is great. Probably have to give this a license to kill, perhaps, because it's just such a great chase with the planes and the truck and everything. But this was really close between a lot of these films. But maybe license to kill for this one. Very unique. Uh, climaxes in the 80s. It's very Shout out to Burning Man in that too. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, look, not a whole lot to add really what's been said. Um, oh, yeah, it's it's tough because I was going to put License to Kill up, but I've done that for everything apparently, I think. Um, and I'll put, I'll put the Citroen I'll put the Citroen Chase in for For Your Eyes Only just because it hasn't had the love there. Um, well, it has, but in terms of didn't get the final nod, I love it. It's as we talked about in that episode. It's one I think one of the best car chases ever in Bond. Um, final scene, yeah, it's not going to go to For Your Eyes Only or Octopus. You never say never again. Go away to hell. Um, so it's between View to a Kill, License to Kill, and Living Daylights. Uh, Living Daylights is great with the plane, and we really didn't talk about, uh, actually, in the episode, one of my favourite lines in the entire movie is at the end when they're looking at the signs, and he's like, oh, I know a great restaurant in Karachi, we can just make dinner. Like, I love that. It's so good. <laughs> Who said Dalton can't do one Exactly. Line? Go away, Colin We've Hill. We've got nothing to declare. <laughs> but... Yeah, like I'm gonna give it to a view to a kill just because license kill's already been taken, and I feel like I've been doing too many of that. Uh, I love the 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 setting of it. I love the Golden Gate Bridge. I love the fact that it's on a freaking airship, and even in when he's about to die, Zoran is just like laughing like a megalomaniac. He's just such an evil bastard. So yeah, gonna give it to a view to a kill to give that a bit of props in the end. Um, yeah, that's our final lot of questions there. I think so. We move on Ooh. really. <laughs> Into the final part of the episode, including uh, a bit of a summary of something that I'll hit a button on. Mr. Kiss, Kiss, No, it's not. He's a stupid idiot. Uh, and box office, it is. I don't know the summary of that. The Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang count. Um, so basically, uh, for the decades one, we kind of sort of go where we're at with each actor. Um, now, our tallies for Connery do not include Never Say Never Again. That is a separate non-official Bond count, even though we've kind of talked about that in the official capacity a little bit this episode. Uh, so after the 80s, we're at 177 kills, 43 uh, intimate little moments, 11 martinis, and 18 Bonds, James Bonds. Now, 
We've got three actors to close out here. So do you, any of you two want to hedge a guess at who's leading the kill count uh, after at this point? Connery. Yeah. Connery, you'd be correct. 84. Um, well, that didn't really change anyway from the last one. Roger Moore ends at 73 kills. Timothy Ooh, Dalton ends at 13 kills. Um, the return to the cold Please do. Yeah, let's let's point out again, like, this perception that Timothy Dalton was, like, the, the murderous Bond, the really cold, hard-edged Bond. Even if you average out per film, Connery and Moore are well over 10 kills per movie on average. And Dalton, on average, is, what, six and a half? Does that make him? Yeah. Yeah, which which makes him the Bond who kills the least of any Bond in history, even on average. Less than Lazenby. Lazenby had seven in his one, so. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm probably going to put this out there in a live and say, dumb, Brosnan will kill more in Goldeneye than um, Timothy Dalton yeah. did in his two movies. Probably. <laughs> um, all right, so what about sexual conquests here? Who who do you think gets the, the nod between Connery and Moore? Martin, well, Maybe more. Ooh, more maybe. Close. Well, yeah. you had a couple of high ones. Yeah, more nineteen. Connery seventeen. Um, and you said he wasn't sexy. <laughs> <laughs> nineteen women would disagree with you, Ben. He did have an extra movie. Well, Twenty if you count Ben's mom. <laughs> he did have an extra movie. Um, Dalton four and Lazenby. Well, not in this decade, but he had three. Uh, all right, who drinks more between four. Sean Connery and Roger Moore? And Dalton. Actually, let's put Dalton in this category because he's in the chance here. Connery by far. Yeah, Connery. Well, you're oh. right, but not by far. Connery had four martinis, more and Dalton three. So, yeah, there you go. Uh, who likes to say their name the most between Connery, Moore, and Dalton? Uh, Roger Moore loves to do that. Moore. <laughs> yeah, Moore shits it in. Eleven. Um, Connery only three times and Dalton twice. So, um, so Connery did it on average, what, 0.5 times per movie? <laughs> yes. Whereas... Moore did it more than once per movie. Well, let's not forget Never Say Never Again. And Lazenby My name is it. Bond, James Bond. Lazenby twice. Um. <laughs> oh, and you know what's even on. funnier is that if you include how many St. John Smites, James St. <laughs> yes. John Smites are in there, he's probably in like the 30s. And he's news reporter. Uh, <laughs> yes. James <Sorry>. Stock. <laughs> now, yeah, now obviously, obviously I haven't um, lumped in in terms of more in the 80s versus the 70s. I haven't gone quite into that detail, but um, yeah, somebody at home can do that. Uh, all right, let's summarise our... <laughs> Rankings, baby. No, it's not, you stupid idiot. It's rankings. <laughs> now, you bag me up for my rankings. So what I've done here in terms of this is I've... Um, so I've put them in order of just 80s films only. So, Colin, do you know yours off by heart or have that by hand? Or do you want me to go through them? Uh, like, just for the 80s Just the 80s. So rank your five eight, and Obviously, not including Never Say Never Again in this. So your five 80s movies in order. I'm pretty sure. Oh, I know for your eyes only is the top, and then I'm pretty sure Octopussy, uh, Living Daylights of You to a Kill, and then License to Kill. Yep, that is correct. We interestingly, we all have a different movie for our best movie of the decade. Noah, do you know yours? Uh, you better tell all the listeners <laughs> what I've done because I don't have the best memory. So you've got Living Daylights, Octopussy, For Your Eyes Only, A View to Kill, and License to Kill, and mine, um, License to Kill, A View to a Kill. 
uh, Living Daylights, Fear Eyes Only, and Octopussy. It seems weird having Fear Eyes Only at fourth, but compared to what I've got ahead of it. Um, now, this really, we lead in then, we obviously we're ranking the decades as well. So it gets a little bit trickier now. We, we did the 60s. Also, where are we going there? Um, but again, I've written my little template here and uh, I've automatically assumed where you two are going to put the 80s. But would you care, Colin, to say where you would put the 80s compared to the other two decades? <laughs> I definitely put it third, um, although I do think there's some strong movies in there. But yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure it's. I'm I'm pretty sure I'm positive it's third <laughs> out of the three decades. I don't have to ask you, Noah, either, do I? <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely third. But that doesn't mean I hate it. There's still a lot of redeeming factors, but the '60s and '70s are just too good, and the '80s had too many issues. And I'm very curious to see where you put it. Well, I was torn. Um, I was Natalie and Brulia's. Um, just looking at... I, I went through and tallied um, which decade we had the most in our top half. So, obviously, we've had 16 movies at this point. So, the top half being the top eight. So, Colin, looking at your top eight, you have five 60s movies in your top eight, one 70s and two 80s. Noah, you have four 60s, three 70s and one 80s. I have four 80s, three 60s and one 70s. On that basis alone, I was tossing up what gets it between the 60s and the 80s. I've given it to the 80s purely on the fact that I have had one more film in my top half than the 60s. Wait, do you mean as the top? I have got the 80s at number one. <laughs> this and is where you edit in the silence. Goodbye, the last listener. Edit fart noise. Enjoyed having you on Double R7. <laughs> <laughs> So to, each to their own. To, each to, to clarify, eighties, sixties, seventies is mine. Noah's is sixties, seventies, eighties. Collins is sixties, seventies, eighties. So and Ben, if you look at your top <laughs> five, three of your top five are eighties movies. Am I right? Yes, they would be. I've got one sixties wow. and one seventies in there as well. Um. I guarantee you, I can tell you 100% now that it does not end at number one. So, um, yeah. Okay. Might end up at number two. We look forward to losing everybody else when Die Another Day goes up there. (laughs) Well, we're going to be a bit different with our next decade in terms of that. Um, Let's move into this part. It's the hole, the hole with the classic scenes. Uh, Now... We... It's the hole. <laughs> we so we... Oh. take it, Noah. Come on, this is real. <laughs> I always forget how we do this. So we basically choose one Hall of Fame moment from each movie, if that's correct. Let's just say the five yeah. defining scenes of the decade, or something. Basically, um, now I've got to remember what they are. I haven't put the site up yet. <laughs> Talk amongst yourself, people. Um, what a whack job Waterworth is for putting the 80s up first. Oh, boo. Boo, boo, boo. Um, all right, so for your eyes only, um, why won't this load? <laughs> <laughs> Quick, insert some farts out to stall for time. <laughs> Felt like I couldn't have, couldn't have edited this out in post-production, but for some reason I've left it in. Um, <laughs> okay, uh, episode seven of Double Oz Seven, Mustache on a Horsey for your eyes only. Um, we had in the Hall of Fame uh, the three scenes that were included: uh, the Citroen car chase, Bond kicking Locke off the cliff, and the cliff climbing sequence and final battle. 
So what? This is a testament to the 80s that we can't remember a single scene in the entire Five Hall of Fame film. So what what takes the cake there, do we think? Citroen car shows. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I would I would say if we're actually going for most iconic, it would probably be Locke. All right. <laughs> Go for it. Um, but, no. Like, are we going for our favorite or the most iconic here? I think iconic. You tell us. <laughs> Keeping it consistent Wait, on double up Let's hurry up this segment. We're, we're losing in the list. With the longest decade yeah, one already. Noah Groves has never disagreed with anybody. There's three <laughs> martinis. I don't remember the third. There's three. <laughs> There was. All right, uh, I'm back. standing by Citroen Chase because no, we're I don't. Fine. that's the majority win. All right, yeah. Um, <laughs> but we weren't voting on majority. <laughs> okay, so in um, Octopussy uh, episode uh, 18, uh, that was entitled uh, yeah, right. <laughs> "Fucking Camellia Toe." What? Um, train fight between Bond and Gambinda, the Acro Star sequence, and Bond escapes into the jungle. None. <laughs> <laughs> I go Acrostar. Acrostar, yeah. Well, I was going to ah. say... Uh, <laughs> I'll go with the, the pre-title scene. Okay. Uh, never say never again. We had the dishonorable ones. Horse falling off the cliff. <laughs> the motorbike chase yes. and death by urine. <laughs> A horse off the cliff. Horsey! Horsey off the cliff! Horsey. Unanimous. <laughs> and Vaughn loses every article of clothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, real super freaks don't eat quiche a view to a kill our three were the chase up the Eiffel Tower and Paris car chase Zorin's massacre in the mine and the Golden Gate Bridge final battle Golden Gate Bridge Ooh, yeah for the yeah. stunt work I would agree because the massacre wasn't even in there until we changed it last minute alright we'll go with that um, alright uh, Loving Daylight uh, put that on a t-shirt so uh, Car Chase with the cello chase and nothing to declare line I don't even need to read the other two yes. that wins it uh, no, the plane final scene and Bond landing on the boat and saying Bond James Bond <laughs> I like Colin um, Car Chase yeah yeah I'll agree even though I don't like the final line the nothing to declare um, and License to Kill Della Dinklighter's Honeymoon um, truck final chase Felix vs the shark and plane chase and the water skiing sequence I'd Trucks, say the truck chase it, it got really two out of the three best climaxes of the decade yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and it's got a burning guy in it <laughs> oh, yeah. yes. that wins it for Colin oh yes there was a burning <laughs> man in it um, alright the fighting moment of the decade is horsey off the cliff absolutely Yes. Closely followed by <laughs> Death by Urine. Um, sure. I think we're done. I think we've closed it all out, if I'm not mistaken. Um, that really just leaves us now to head into our Ford thoughts. Uh, obviously, we talked a little bit about Goldeneye at the end of License to Kill, but more so the Decade one. So look, looking forward, uh, changing up slightly for our Decade episodes in terms of um, what we're doing. Uh, obviously, it's a little bit different with moving forward. So instead of just doing a flat-out 90s one, we will be doing essentially a Brosnan one. So the 90s one will include Die Another Day, and then moving forward, uh, Daniel Craig will obviously then go into the 2010s with Skyfall and Spectre. Um, Spectre? I, 
I don't know if I really need to go too much into my overall love of what we're about to get into. I went a lot of it in Goldeneye, but look, I am just so looking forward to the next four films. Um, these, these are my, this is my favorite period of Bond, um, easily, hands down. I love these films. Uh, I'm gonna, you think I defended the 80s. Wait till we get into some of these, although I do know that at least on one film, I think we're all gonna be unanimous in loving it. And I know at least on the other one that I am super, super high on that I know at least one of you will be with me on that one. No, Ben, we are not unanimous in loving Die Another Day. It wasn't Die Another Day that I was talking about. But yeah, look, it's, it's a reboot of, of, sorts um we get introduced to a man who uh we very nearly would have been talking about in this decade uh mr brosnan and uh we've got a lot to look forward to with so many different aspects and so much there and i just am giddy with excitement the fact that we are that close to actually talking about the brosnan films so yeah just uh i'm I'm gonna have to start talking about it otherwise uh, i'm gonna have to change my undies Uh, I don't know why you're changing your undies, but it could be one of two reasons or three reasons. And all of them make sense for Ben. Um, let's see. Pierce Brosnan. Uh, this is the guy that introduced me to Bond. And I was just having this discussion with somebody yesterday that you know I can never say Pierce Brosnan is the greatest Bond ever. But I can say he's probably the one I'm most attached to because I grew up watching him. I think the Brosnans are unfairly criticized often as being movies that just were entertaining but not necessarily special and i agree with that i don't think any of these movies are necessarily anything special but why just gloss over how entertaining they are i mean these movies even the bad ones uh are a lot of fun to watch and they all have a lot going on and pierce brosnan much like we praise roger moore for this pierce brosnan was always giving it his all even when it was a weak movie near the end uh I I can have fun with all these movies, and I think even though it's not necessarily the greatest Bond or all of my favorite Bond movies, I can probably say I'm more looking forward to watching this than I was the Roger Moore era or the Timothy Dalton era, maybe even more than the Daniel Craig era, because it's just there's nothing there's nothing going on in these movies that's boring, and uh, I think that's the one thing that people need to give them more credit for. Uh, plus, there are at least two really strong movies in this bunch here, and. Uh, we're, we're all going to agree on one, but the other one, as Ben mentioned, we may have disagreements on. I'm just curious to see if it's the same one. Uh, yeah, these are the films that I grew up on. Uh, just going to say it, Brosnan is not my favourite Bond, but like you, Colin, I do have a semi-attachment to it. Um, but it's also one of the most polarising eras of Bond for me because there's some really good stuff in there, but let's not hide the facts. There's some really terrible stuff in there too. But I also kind of agree that even the bad stuff can be fun to watch because it's bad. Like I enjoy watching B-grade movies because it's fun. Um, four episodes time is going to be the episode you've been <laughs> dreading to listen to or oh the episode God, you've so been close. waiting to listen to. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> I can't believe yeah, we're going to be so talking about that so soon. That's going to be interesting. Uh, and I'm hosting it. <laughs> <sighs> Really? Um, So that's going to be definitely one notable point of our journey of watching these films. Um, 
yeah, there's one that we're all going to agree on that's great. I don't watch these films as much as I watch the others. Uh, there's one we're all going to agree on, and then there's another one that I'm in slight defense of. And then again, like Colin, I'm interested to see we're all talking about the one we agree on, but is the other one, like, are we each going to have a different other one, which is going to be an interesting I know, thing? I to- know which one. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> I know the one that Ben know. knows all. <laughs> I've had conversations Just, guys, with you both, I and know. I know, I know which ones uh, we're, uh, we're on the side of. Way to spoil the mystery. <laughs> yeah. Well, the audience doesn't read Ben's mind. It's not spoiling anything. <laughs> oh, fuck, I'm screwed if they do. <laughs> <laughs> all they can do is nipples, nipples, horsies. <laughs> nipples on horsies. Glad I saw that. <laughs> Nipples yeah. on horses, really? <laughs> nipples on horses. Right. They um, have nipples. They have young. They've got to feed them. No, I was thinking like giant nipples riding horses <laughs> with like eyes and mouth. <laughs> 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 Can we talk about a blinking fish again? What's happened in this episode? <laughs> So yeah, like like this discussion, the Brosnan area is very polarizing, but I'm still excited. But I'm kind of sad we're already done with Dalton. That was a quick ride. All right, this is the longest decade episode ever. <laughs> we only usually put aside 90 minutes for these, and we're basically at the two-hour mark. Um, it's been fun. The 80s, Biter Bonds, three of them uh, moving into such an exciting period but uh it's been a lot of fun and um yeah my name is ben and i'm just thinking about a giant nipple with eyes and a mouth (laughs) (laughs) and i'm colin and sadly we not only will never say never again we will probably never say horsey or mustache or nipple again either (laughs) i am noah and rest in peace della and rest in peace, the 1980s for James Bond. And BB it up, good night, and Dylan!